Why don't we uh, go to before the Lord in prayer before we get started? Father, you are worthy of all power and glory and might and wisdom and strength. You are holy, 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 the God who was and is and is to come. You're the God of love, and we thank you that you have revealed your love for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have adopted us and claimed us as your own, that we are known by you and can know you. If I pray in this moment, in the name of Jesus, if there's someone here who has yet to accept your gift of love, Father, your Spirit would reveal that to them before we leave this place. We thank you what you're doing across this nation. Uh, We thank you how you're revealing yourselves. We want to lift up to our our world leaders and our government leaders. And uh, Father, we just pray that you would put people in their lives that can give them godly wisdom, your wisdom. We thank for the promise that one day you're going to return and you're going to take us all home. We thank you that as we sang the song that the battles we face in this life, Lord, they belong to you because you've claimed us. Father, I pray in this time that uh, you just use me as an instrument of your righteousness, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. I pray the same for everyone that's here this morning. Uh, Lord, that you would be glorified and your kingdom and will would be done in each and every heart, in each and every life, in each and every family in this place. Continue to guide and lead us as your church, your bride, uh, that we might continue to glorify you, we might tell others how you love them, and that we might reveal how we love them as well, even if we may not agree with everything they say or do. Ask your forgiveness if we failed you in any ways, we worshiped you, and we pray us in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, if you want to make your way to the Gospel of John chapter 6, we'll be in 52 through 59 here in a moment. Um, Some of you all know that when I began in the ministry, I started off as a youth pastor, and uh, I did that for about 14, 15 years. Um, My uh, first real encounter with youth ministry outside of working for Youth for Christ was uh, in Chatham, Illinois, where I was the summer interim youth pastor. And there's a, a thing we did one time, I remember it's called a, a faith fall, or some people refer to it as a trust fall. Um, and what it is, is you would get one individual and you put them up on an uh, elevated position, typically a chair or table, and then you'd have a group of people behind them, and they would say, ready, and then the people behind them say, ready, and say, fall, falling, and then they fall back, and the idea is that you're trusting those people are going to catch you, and, and you're putting your faith in that situation. So we're doing this object lesson with these teenagers, and the girls were going first, and there's one kid <laughs> that he, he was just trying to throw them all off, and I would just have to say he's being a jerk, and if you did insult that, I can't believe a pastor's calling a kid a jerk. He's a full-grown man now, but he's, he was being a jerk at that particular moment, and uh, it, it, I sometimes say that, the word jerk, when I'm driving down and coming around the corner at the TA when those semis pulls right out, and you know they saw you, right? And he's just, jerk. But anyway, uh, you can pray for me. So he was, he was back there, and we're going through the, the callings, and so he would, he would act like he was going to move at the last moment, or he'd act like he was going to drop the girl that was falling at the last moment, or when they started leaning back, he'd be like, no, no, wait. And so 
I got to the point where I was like, all right, listen, all the girls are going to get behind, and you're, it's your turn now. So he gets up on the, I think we were using a chair at the time, and I line the girls up in their interlocking arms so they're able to, to hopefully catch him when he falls. And so they go through the commands, uh, ready, ready, fall, falling. And to the kid's credit, he went for it. I, I didn't think he'd actually go through it because I asked him before I got up there, do you trust and have faith that these girls will catch you after everything you just did to them? And so he, he, he fell to his credit. The problem was, is he weighed too much for the girls to catch him. And so he went right through their arms, landed on the floor, which was a concrete floor, floor and smashed his, his uh, tailbone. And I don't know if you ever had a cracked tailbone, but that is very painful. So I was pretty quick on my feet in that moment. I looked at him. I said, well, this is another lesson that sometimes we can put our faith in the wrong things. And sometimes living by faith can be painful. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is in the synagogue of Capernaum, and he's given this final lesson on faith. But when we read it at face value, it's kind of hard to discern what he's actually talking about. This is going to be our fourth week within this teaching moment in the synagogue in Capernaum. Next week, we're going to look at the response to what the disciples did when they heard what Jesus was teaching. And as a reminder, this was all set up with the feeding of the 5,000. The crowds woke up the next morning, couldn't find Jesus, so they went searching for him, had a good idea that he probably went back to Capernaum because that seemed to be his home base of operation. Beginning as face, at face value, the verses we're looking at are going to be a little hard to digest, and that's a joke, and you'll get it when we read the verses here in a second, uh, but we'll understand it in a, in a moment. And the crowds were seeming to have an issue understanding what Jesus was trying to teach them and lead them to understand. So again, we're going to be in verse 52, and we're going to run through verse 59. And the word of the Lord says, Then the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the, father, the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, this is the second time in this encounter, which began back in verse 22, where the crowds were getting upset. The entire teaching was launched by a statement from the crowds concerning manna and Moses, which is taken from the book of Exodus. And they misunderstood the context and the, the story or the lesson that God was teaching his people in that, in that event. So Jesus used the crowd's misunderstanding of the Scripture to reveal that he was the bread of life. He says it numerous times here in this, this sermon. The dispute in verse 52 is based on what Jesus said previously in verse 50 and 51, where he says that this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread 
that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And what John's led to reveal with verse uh, 41 and 52 is the crowds at synagogue were just like their ancestors back in the book of Exodus. They were grumblers. They were complainers. They liked to argue. And what has tended to be a time of worship here in the synagogue quickly became a very disruptive and ugly business meeting. The word disputed in verse 52 means that the crowd was arguing harshly and intensely with one another. And the image that we're given here in verse 52 is as Jesus taught, now the crowds are starting to build up a ruckus. They're starting to try to discern what Jesus is teaching them, and yet they're stuck in this materialistic mindset. You have to remember they came because, and Jesus knew why they came, because they wanted more food. They were stuck on the physical. They were thinking physical. While Jesus is trying to draw them to a spiritual truth and a spiritual understanding. Interesting enough, when this all started, the crowds were once in awe of Jesus. After the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, they wanted to make him king, which tells us they had this idea or understanding that he was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah they were waiting for, but they misunderstood what that implied. When they showed up at the synagogue on this, on this day as Jesus was teaching, they initially approached him as rabbi, which was a title of respect, meaning teacher. And at the beginning of this lesson, Jesus had the crowds right where we think he would want them, eager to be with him, eager to learn from him. But Jesus understood as the crowds came, they weren't coming because they believed in what he was saying. They didn't trust his words as truth, and they weren't relying on him. The crowd in this moment is having a faith issue, and Jesus' words, which were meant to help them draw closer to truth, only kind of pushed them away. The crowd's understanding was Jesus was calling them to become cannibals. That's why they asked that question there in verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus doesn't back off on the idea. He says, eat, eat the flesh, feed on the flesh, drink the blood, that his flesh is true true food and his blood is true drink and to eat the flesh and to drink the blood is to abide and remain in Jesus and Jesus would in turn remain in them. For the Jewish people who would have been at the synagogue, this teaching would have been incredibly hard for them to grasp. For one reason, the book of Leviticus, which was the book of the law, God strictly prohibited his people eating anything that had blood still in it and particularly drinking blood. Leviticus says, for the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall, eat the blood of, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And that phrase, which you find throughout the Old Testament numerous times, to be cut off, means the individual would be cast out of camp and cast out of God's covenantal promise with his people. So the Israelites, they didn't eat anything red, rare. And when Jesus says that what is recorded here in John, the crowds have known this passage from the book of Leviticus, and they know what Jesus is telling them is prohibited by the God they were claiming to worship and claiming to know. So Jesus can't be speaking literally here when he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood because Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to break the law. Matter of fact, Jesus even said in the Gospel of Matthew, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same would be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is teaching and what he is amplifying is what he previously taught back in verse 40. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Where Jesus is drawing from with these analogies of eating flesh and drinking blood is that he is talking about us and these people have an all-consuming faith about him. To be totally in. The implication that Jesus is bringing out is faith is spiritual. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're given a definition of faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The word assurance, and that's Hebrew is 11.1, carries the meaning of confidence. It is the confidence of eternal life that is placed in Jesus Christ alone. It is the confidence that we are to have in the promises of God found in his word. The word conviction carries the meaning of proof or evidence of. It calls for a certain way of living by faith. By faith, we live out our new identities found in Christ as adopted children. Our faith lived out is the proof or the evidence. In Romans chapter 8, we're told, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait, patient, wait for it patiently. So what we're learning here is faith is what produces the fruit which we're all called to bear as God's people. And when we live by faith and we produce the fruit, we can have a confidence in our salvation found in Christ, and therefore we produce the proof of our salvation to others as we live our life. This isn't to reveal that we deserve salvation. It isn't to reveal that we have to work for salvation or earn salvation to keep it. Rather, it is just living out our faith our confidence, our assurance in who Christ is and what God is calling us to do. Jesus in this moment, even though he's speaking about flesh and blood, he's calling this crowd to get past the physical and begin living by faith, to trust him, to rely on him, to believe in him, even though they can't fully understand everything he's teaching. He's just saying, trust me. Be consumed by me. Have an all-consuming faith in me. Some take this passage to say that Jesus is teaching on the Lord's Supper, and that is a misinterpretation of this passage. There are two problems with that. First, Jesus is yet to introduce the Lord's Supper. He's going to do that at the very end of his ministry in the upper room with his disciples before he goes to the garden and eventually the cross. Though when he does teach on the Lord's Supper, he uses similar language. But that's not what he's pointing to. The second problem with that interpretation is that if he's speaking about the Lord's Supper, then the implication of it would be that the Lord's Supper is what saves us. And that isn't what saves us. We are saved by Christ alone. You can take the Lord's Supper, and you may have taken the Lord's Supper, and still not be saved. Because it is an act. See, if we rely on the things that we can do, like we can go to church like you're here right now, we can become a member of a church, we can get baptized, we can take the Lord's Supper, we can sing worship songs. And if we rely on the things that we can do as the means of our salvation, then we're not living by faith. We're living by works. Now, all those things are important, all those things are good to do, but that is not what saves us. The evidence 
of our salvation is our faith in the words, teachings, and guidance of Jesus Christ and God in his word. The evidence and confidence of our faith is only found in the life, death, resurrection of Christ and living in response to that. That's the evidence. He did the work because we couldn't. This is why we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And then in the very same breath, Paul is led by the Holy Spirit to write in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word workmanship in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 means by our faith in Christ, we are now the work of Christ, pointing to our forgiveness, our adoption, and our salvation. So God saved us through the work of Christ so we might produce good works which represent Christ all in faith. That's living out our faith. And what Jesus points out in our passage is the calling to faith is given to anyone and everyone. He is calling everyone to look to him and be consumed by the Father's love found in him. He is pointing to the cross where his body, his flesh, is going to be broken. His blood is going to be poured out. He's pointing to the empty tomb where he is going to rise in a new body as those who put their faith in him will one one day again rise and be given a new body. For this reason, faith is imperative because Jesus points out that faith gives eternal life. Verse 54, verse 57, verse 58, they all point to this truth. The implication of what Jesus is saying, if one does not have their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life, if you have not done that, if you have not trusted God's love for you found in Jesus Christ, you do not have eternal life. You are lost. You are still in your sin. Jesus is the only way, and he makes this abundantly clear throughout his ministry. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If we were to walk through the book of Romans, we would break it up in three different sections. In Romans chapter 1 to the very beginning of Romans chapter 10, Paul is led to lay out our sinfulness and our wickedness before a holy God, how all have sinned and fall short, and the wages of sin is death. And we come into Romans chapter 10 and 11, and Paul reveals the remedy to our sinfulness. That if we believe in Jesus Christ, that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved, implying we will be forgiven for our sins and be given eternal life. And then you come to Romans chapter 12 to the end of the book, and Paul then says, now that we've placed our faith in Christ, we are to live in faith, and this is what that is going to look like when we live for Christ. Be transformed. Become a living sacrifice. Back here in the book of John, as the crowds brought up manna and Jesus turned the conversation onto he being the bread of life, he's wanting them to know that Jesus is the only source of true satisfaction. As he pointed out earlier with the ancestors, that the manna and the bread that they ate, well, they died. He said that in verse 49. He reiterates it in verse 58. But then the reality is, is when we place our faith in Christ alone, we are now living an eternal life right now. We live because of him, and we will live forever. 
In return, just as Jesus lived because of the Father, we now live because of Jesus. There's an old hymn. Hymns used to come in books, by the way. Um, but it captures what Jesus is teaching in this. It starts out that God sent his son. They called him Jesus. Came to love, heal, and forgive. He bled and died to buy my pardon. And an empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. The final thing we see comes out of verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Faith is communion with the Father. Again, when we're talking about communion, we're not talking about the Lord's Supper. We're talking about abiding and remaining in the presence of God and then having the presence of God remaining in us through the Holy Spirit. The word abide means to remain and to stay. And what that calls for is a proactive faith. To remain in the presence of God and stay there, even when it seems like the world is falling apart. Throughout the Gospel of John, John is led to bring out Jesus' teaching using that word abide. It's one of his favorite words when it comes to Jesus' teaching. Matter of fact, in John chapter 15, he records Jesus as saying, I am, the bron- I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And I want to just do a quick interpretation of that real quick. That doesn't mean we can ask for anything. That means if God's word abides in us, you know what we're asking? God's word. Our asking aligns with God's will because we're abiding in him, and his word is abiding in us. Jesus goes on and says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And how do we do that? We abide. We have faith in him alone. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We're going to pack that more when we get to it. But abiding calls for a faith to pursue after God and remain in his love. It is a faith knowing that God can be found and God can be known. It is a faith which is confidence that God isn't just out there waiting to call us home, but he wants an intimate relationship with us as his children It is a faith which recognizes God as a sole provider for all things in life and all things in eternal life. This was the lesson from the manna that God wanted the Israelites to get. 
that he was the provider and sustainer of them. He was going to fight the battle for them. This is why Jesus is now referred to as the bread of life, because through God, all people can be sustained by faith in the life and death of Jesus Christ, which God has provided. He's provided everything we need. Now, when we abide in Christ, Scripture reveals we grow in our obedience. We grow in our loyalty. We grow in our fellowship with God, and we grow in our fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we abide, we grow in our love for God, which in turn, we grow in our love for people, which fulfills the greatest commandments of God. When we abide, our hearts become linked to Christ and his mission. When we abide, we are desires to fulfill the will of God, which is for all people to be saved. Jesus said earlier in verse 40, For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. When we abide, we can't help but be a part of God's eternal plan for people to be saved. Abiding in Christ creates a desire to do the things Christ did, which was to rescue people who were being led astray by the things of this world. The promise of abiding is not just being in and with Christ, but Christ promises right here that when we abide with him, that he will be in us. God and Jesus did this through the Holy Spirit, which now makes us the temple of God. And you look back in Scripture, you see the temple of God was where people went to hear the word of God. They went to worship God. They had communion with God. They would offer sacrifices to God. So now that we are in Christ and he is in us, we are the temple of God. We are to be worshipers, not just singers of songs, but worshipers. We are to be the place where we remain in the presence of God and commune with God through the Holy Spirit. We keep step with the Spirit, which points to our relationship with him. We are called in Scripture in Romans 12.1 to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Why? Because we're now the temple of God. So we're always dying to ourselves so we can abide and remain and stay in Christ. And this is all done in faith and by faith. Matter of fact, the Bible points out in Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Abide in Christ through faith by being in his word and with his people. So the question for us, if we already have Christ in us, is how is our abiding going? How is our remaining with him going? Our staying with him? Our resting in him? And it might sound like we don't do anything, but it's actually a proactive faith because just think how easily it is to get distracted. How many of y'all's minds went somewhere else just in the time I've been preaching? It's a proactive faith that is rewarding. Abide. This brings us to the final question. Have you, in this room, have you placed your faith in Christ alone? Have you trusted your life to his death and his resurrection and the meaning that is to have for you. See, Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world. To take the wrath of God fully upon himself in the way, the only reason he is able to do that is because he lived perfectly according to the word and law of God. And then the Bible tells us he didn't just die, but he rose again to show that he has power over death and the authority to forgive sins and grant eternal life.
And if you're here this morning and you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, God makes it so easy. It begins by admitting to God that you're a sinner. That means you fall short of his holiness and his perfection. And it's to believe in what I just told you, how Jesus died for your sins but rose again to forgive you. And the Bible says when you put your faith in that, not what you can do, but you put your faith in what Christ did for you and confess him as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. And if you're here this morning and you need to accept God's gift of love to you, I'm going to be standing down here. You can come and sit in the front row if you want, or you can come straight to me. We'll pray together. We'll celebrate together. Brothers and sisters, Christ, we're called to abide. Be in his presence. Be consumed by his love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that you are for us, not against us. And that nothing can separate us from your love. If I know there's a lot of things going on in this world that can distract us, there's a lot of things that are going on in our own life that can distract us. But Lord, help us to make it a priority that we abide in you. Thank you so much that you allow us to have an intimate relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning that heard of your love for them and what you did through Jesus, and they know they need to accept that gift and confess you as their Lord and Savior, Father, I pray in this moment that they would come down the aisle and today would be the day of their salvation. Forgive us if we failed you in any way. We ask you to continue to be glorified in this moment. Pray us all in your son's name. Amen.